Well, thank you so much, Heavenly Father, for your steadfast love. Thank you for your faithfulness when we are so faithless. And thank you for the stability of your word. And thank you how it anchors us, and it's a foundation upon which we can build our lives. And thank you for the truth that is absolute, that we can be unwavering in our understanding of who we are and how we got here and what's expected of us. And so now, Lord, as we open our Bibles and as we think about uh, some more aspects of your creation and, and of uh, some of these great historical events that are recorded for us, I pray that you will teach us through your Holy Spirit, encourage us and strengthen us, that we would walk in the truth and be your light in the midst of a dark generation. It's in Jesus' name we pray with thanksgiving today. Amen. Well, um, didn't you love the way that pilot brought that jet down in the Hudson River? And more than that, didn't you just love it that we had a great ending to that story this week? And uh, unless you were in a hole in the ground somewhere, you know that uh, that jet that took off from LaGuardia and then evidently hit a flock of geese uh, went down in the Hudson River, 150-ish passengers on board. And aren't those some great shots of those people out in that freezing weather, outstanding on the wings, I tell you, that was something to behold. I had the great privilege of uh, being able to uh, take private pilot's license training when I was in college. I never finished it, but partly because of that, I uh, had a great interest in that story, and I did enough training to uh, have to do some uh, engine failure training instruction with my flight instructor. So we were down in Beckley, and we'd be up, and it'd be a beautiful day, and, and uh, my instructor was a woman. She reached over, and she would just cut the power on this little Cessna 172, and she'd say, okay, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And it kind of shakes you up a little bit, you know? But you know what you learn? You learn that there are some absolutely reliable laws of physics, and that if you stay inside of those laws, everything works out. And there's a such thing as a glide pattern and, and with air speed and wind speed and the configuration of the wing, do you know that the airplane, it cannot fall out of the air? Because there are laws of physics that if certain amount of air is going over the wing at a certain angle, that plane will stay in the air. Now gravity pulls it down and if you don't have power to keep pulling you up, you've only got so much time. And I was thinking about what must have gone through that pilot's mind. And of course, they train for it and get in simulators. But what a cool customer he must have been. And then I wonder what he was thinking when he pulled that nose up at the last minute and drug that tail down into water. But praise the Lord, they're all well. You know, I was thinking about the fact that those laws of physics are as true and absolute as John 3.16. Do you know that? But they're not in the Bible. But God established those laws. I have a question for you. Is the Bible a scientific book? The answer is no. You can find nowhere in the Bible the laws that a guy named Venturi discovered about wind flow and wind speed and airspeed and wing configuration. You can find nowhere in the Bible, for example, the Pythagorean theorem. But it's true, isn't it? 
And these things happen. Maybe it's a theorem. Maybe it's not uh, true. I, sh- I use it off the top of my head. I shouldn't have said that. I think it's a truism. I hope you get my point. The Bible, though it's not a scientific book, I want to encourage you this morning in our message that it is when it deals with the areas of science and whatever department that might fall into, geology or paleontology or so forth, it's always within the realm. It's accurate. Let me illustrate this by us turning together to Isaiah chapter 40 before we turn to Genesis. We're in a Genesis series here at Fellowship Bible Church, if you're new to us, and we're working our way through that book of beginnings, and we're in the middle of Noah's flood is where we are. But in Isaiah chapter 40, I want to show you something as we begin this morning, uh, how the Bible relates to science. And what kind of a mindset we need to have as we study the word this morning. Do you know that there was a time, do you know that there was a time uh, that people believed that the earth was flat? And that if you didn't think the earth was flat, people would laugh at you, mock you, and even beat you up. Can you imagine that? What do you mean the earth is flat? round or whatever you think it is. But it's interesting to me that when we read Isaiah chapter 40, look at verses 21 and 22. It says, Do you not know and have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. You know what's interesting about the Bible is that it will talk about the physical world in which we live in different terms. But let's say you believe the Bible and were a student of the Bible back in the Middle Ages when they were teaching that the earth was flat and all of the leading astronomers and astrologists and scientists and whatever ology you were a part of was teaching that the earth was flat. But you're reading in your devotional uh, reading one day and you see that God, according to Isaiah 40, 22, sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. That's interesting, isn't it? But now, later we read in the verse that the skies are like a tent. And so the Bible sometimes uses poetic imagery and sometimes it gives little snippets and clues about our physical world But what I want to challenge us this morning is that when we read our Bibles, we don't have to be embarrassed about the description that the Bible gives us concerning natural physical, our natural physical world. Yes, there's great discoveries to behold. Mankind has discovered much truth that's not in the Bible that was established by God inside the universe of humanity. We didn't make it up. The law of gravity, for example... We didn't make it up. We just discovered it, okay? And so there's lots of truth to be discovered. And though the Bible's not a science book, here's what people like to do. Skeptics of God's word love to take the Bible and they love to take what scientists are discovering and they like to say, see, I told you, you can't rely upon the Bible, And this morning, I want us to turn now to Genesis 6 and 7, and we're going to have a little bit different kind of a message as we look at Noah's flood from the perspective of 
what kind of answers can we give a skeptic when it comes to them saying, there is no way that this is true. It's got to be a myth. In fact, if you really look at it, it's all going to break down sooner or later. When you really break down the story and you really ask honest questions, and then when you look at the the natural world around us, the Bible story of Noah's flood and the natural world of geology and paleontology, they are going to collide and they're not going to agree. And I would suggest this morning that nothing could be further from the truth. Now, some of you are not interested in this subject very much at all. You read Genesis 6, 7, that's the way God said it, that's the way it is, and you're not interested in science and those kinds of things. Others of you may be young in the Lord and quite new to studying the Bible, and you may have never thought that there is a such thing as biblical creationism and that the whole realm of science and that there are fine Bible-believing Christian highly educated PhDs and so on who are doing great work in the area of creation research. And that as we dig below the surface of the earth and as we look at the natural world around us and as we look at our Bibles, we're discovering things that fit right in with what the Bible says. It all fits together. I want to give a little commercial for a couple of books as we begin because let me tell you, we're going to ask... Today, the sermon was to ask seven questions of ourselves about Noah's flood. And in the early service, I already know I only got through five of them. Surprise, surprise. So two weeks from today, we'll pick that up again. And actually, it'll give me a chance to to add a few more good questions that I knew I wouldn't have time for today. But each of the questions that we're going to try to answer today... There are entire books and chapters written on each of those questions. And so if you personally are interested in this kind of thing, some of you much rather do your research on a computer, and you know maybe there's websites like um, uh, Answers in Genesis and uh, Institute for Creation Research out in California and so forth. And uh, others of you, though, you like to look at a book and read a chapter and put it down, come back later to it. I want to recommend the four books that are kind of real excellent in this area. One of them, and these are kind of the classics on this, um, a guy named John Whitcomb and a guy named Henry Morris about 25 years ago put together a book called The Genesis Flood, The Biblical Record and Its Scientific Implications. It's, it's easy to read, relatively easy to read. It's just an excellent handling of Noah's flood in detail and what, what the earth record shows. The Genesis Flood. If you're not familiar with that, I want you to be familiar with that. And if you want to read more about this stuff, you can borrow that book. Henry Morris, who teamed up in the Genesis Flood, wrote another book called The Genesis Record. And this is sort of a commentary on the book of Genesis. This is an excellent book as well for understanding the entire book of Genesis. And then many of you are becoming familiar with the, with the Creation Museum out by Cincinnati and a guy named Ken Ham from Australia. And um, one of his guys, Buddy Davis, is who wrote that Billions of Dead Things song that the kids sang last week. And they're doing a lot of good work in the area of creation research. And Ken Ham has edited a book with a bunch of scientists who are Christians. And it's in a series called The Answer Books. And each chapter deals with, what about the Ice Age? What about dinosaurs? What about, and they deal with it from a biblical perspective. Well done, educated, highly educated people. Um, who really do some quality work. My favorite that I find very helpful, partly because I love the title, is Tornado in a Junkyard by a guy named James Perloff. 
this is an excellent book for anybody who would like to uh, just discover more. Okay, how do I process my entire life? I've been taught about evolution and, and billions of years and that, that it takes millions of years for fossils to form and, and so forth. And now I read my Bible and, and the pastor says that it all happened very rapidly and it's a young earth, not an old earth. And is there any scientists that are working on this? These are some books that you should look at and be familiar with. It's excellent material. And I just wanted to take a few minutes and uh, bump you with that. Furthermore, in our introduction time or comments this morning, I want to mention a couple of other thoughts as we approach Genesis 6 and 7. First of all, uh, sort of a caution in the way we think when we study the Bible and we examine the scientific record and see how the two come together. But the first caution that I want to mention is this. The Bible, number one, the Bible does not depend upon natural cause to credential itself. Do you understand what I'm saying? The Bible, when we study our Bible and when we look at science, it's a lot of fun and it's interesting to see how the two come together, but you need to know as you think about it that the Bible never depends on science to credential itself. Why? Because we have a supernatural God. And as God has revealed himself to us, he does, on occasion, supernatural things. For example, if we were going to do a scientific experiment up here this morning, and we wanted to get three of our fine young men, tie them with ropes, bring a bunch of wood and put it around them, strike a fire, and burn them like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fire, what do you suppose would happen to those three young men, the ropes that hold them, the wood around them, and our platform? What would happen? Burn. It'd burn, wouldn't it? And yet in our Bibles, we have a phenomenal story that really happened with real fire, with real people, with real ropes, and they threw them in a fire. And then the king looked through the hatch of the door and he said, they're not burning up. Now, you could say the Bible's not a scientific book, see? Fire burns and that's a science. There's science. We can, we can study it and we can know why things combust at a certain temperature. And those young men were in a fire that was seven times hotter than hot, whatever that is. And they didn't burn up. Why? Because God interrupted the normal laws of the universe to preserve his testimony and his name for a specific reason at that time. He doesn't always choose to do that. And so when we study the Bible, one of the things we have to do is we have to remember, we, are, we have more or less a history book, especially in the book of Genesis. We have historical accounts and it really happened, and we really believe it, but it doesn't always fit science, but the Bible doesn't worry about that. It happened a lot, right? Moses and his army backed up against the Red Sea, and we want to study that. And we say, okay, what time of year did, can we calculate on the... Egyptian calendar that it really happened and oh yes there's always these strong winds that come and then every once in a while there's cyclone winds and they all two came together and that wind hit the Red Sea at just the right spot and the water blew apart by the by the wind and the people were able to walk across and then the wind died down and then Pharaoh's army got swallowed up in the water that's not how we study our Bible and furthermore it did it was it 99.9% .9 chance it had nothing to do with wind. Okay? Sometimes God used natural things to accomplish extra, um, extraordinary things. 
And why he did some of that, I don't know. For example, when Jesus healed the blind man, do you remember the time he spit in the mud and mixed up some mud and smeared mud on the guy's eyes? See, you want to go to the science lab and study what kind of spit and what kind of mud makes people see. I don't think it had anything to do with the physics or the, the physiology of it or the science of it. Same thing with wind and the parting of the waters. God interrupted, that's the way it is. And the Bible doesn't need science to credential itself. It's the way it is. However, when we read our Bibles, one of the things that we want to know is, is the information that we are given as fact, is it reliable information? And, and do, does the physical world support the reality that this could happen? For example, there are many flood theories throughout history in almost all cultures. The Chinese, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, for example, had a flood story in their past. I believe that the fact is that if you're an anthropologist and you study all these cultures and you find that there's a flood theory, there must have been a flood. It probably really happened. Otherwise, why would all these different cultures think it up? But the Babylonians twisted and turned theirs because they turned away and rejected the Bible, the Word of God. And in their story, the boat that was used is a cube. Mariners have looked at that, and scientists and scholars have looked at that, and you know what they've decided? A cube is a lousy shape for a boat full of animals. And it's going to tip over. Okay? And so that's the mindset that I'm talking about. Yes, God can interrupt the norm, and God can make a cube float if he wants to. But when Noah built a boat, he built a normal boat, and it really worked. And that's the kind of question we're asking ourselves. Secondly, I want you to know, as we study creationism, and as we study the book of Genesis, and as we look at these things, there is a fatal flaw in the evolutionist mindset, and it's uniformity. What do I mean by that? Point number two of caution. I'm still in my introduction. You see why we didn't get through seven questions? We must not assume, as the evolutionist does, the theory of uniformity. We must not assume, as the evolutionist does, the theory of uniformity. You see, the evolutionist, the naturalist, the one who operates outside of the spectrum in the worldview that there is a God who is at work among people in the physical world, says this. Everything is as it always has been and always will be. And so based upon the fact that nothing, everything is constant, we know that it's going to take so many millions of years and then it keeps going. And so it's a uniform mindset. We would say... Basically, within the physical laws of the universe, there is a uniformity. But we would say, don't be mistaken to believe that on occasion, everything can get changed around. Now, sometimes, it's like in a miraculous way, God stopped the sun in the sky. Let me ask you a question. In the book of Joshua where that happened, do you think that the sun only stopped in the sky over where Joshua was? The sun stopped everywhere. How did that happen? What about the earth on its axis? Axis. I don't know. God performed a miracle and he held everything together while he disrupted the norm. All right? But everything changed. The same thing as we're going to see when we answer one of our questions 
that pre-flood and post-flood, everything looks differently. And there's reason, there's good reason in the fossil record to believe that there was a major disruption in the normal ebb and flow of life. Okay? Thirdly then, let me just remind you that it is Scripture that is inerrant, okay, and inspired of God. It is not science. And if we ever find some science that disagrees with the Bible, at least at Fellowship Bible Church, we always operate from the old-fashioned principle that the Bible is right and science hasn't caught up yet. Okay? Science is not inerrant. And they change all the time. They used to kill each other for the earth being flat. It wasn't that long ago that a couple of bicycle builders out in Dayton, Ohio, were the laughing stock of the world when they said, we're going to build a machine and we're going to fly. And they say, you're out of your ever-loving mind. And it wasn't that long ago that some of your great-granddaddies looked at each other and said, the young president whippersnapper that we have, that Kennedy boy who spoiled rotten, he says we're going to the moon. We're not going to the moon. Man wasn't made to go to the moon and it ain't going to happen. Well, we're on the moon, aren't we? And I'll tell you something. We're on the moon not because we're evolving, but because God has spoken the worlds into existence with set, physical, established laws of physics, and you can rely on it, and they always work. And if we're evolving, one of these days, they won't hit the moon. They're going to go somewhere else because everything's changing. The only reason those airplanes work full of 150 people on a cold winter day is because the constant laws of the universe that God spoke into existence. It didn't just evolve and then all of a sudden we're in a window of time that everything's working out right. It's nonsense. So a few thoughts there as we begin. Now to Genesis chapter 6 and 7. Are you getting hot out there? Depends on who you ask. I had asked the, uh, the deacon, the ushers, to bump up the temperature because it was cold after Sunday school. And uh, I'm getting warm up here, but that's because I'm a little higher and I'm working a little harder. That's okay. I like it that way, especially this weekend. While I've interrupted our message, let me tell you, I talked to Leonard Parsons, our excavator, um, last night, and Friday night on his back porch, his thermometer was minus 17, no chill factor in Preston County. That's cold, isn't it? Minus 17 up there. That's pretty neat. It's good stuff. Genesis chapter 6 and 7 now, and as I said before, I want us to ask seven questions. Seven questions that maybe the skeptic would ask because we've already talked in the past about the fact that the flood is one of the flashpoints. It's, it's one of the points that people look at to say, you guys are nuts what you believe and how you carry on. Genesis chapter 6 and chapter 7 now. We're not going to take time to read the whole thing, but we are going to jump in at chapter 6, verse 11, remind ourselves briefly what's happening and why God is judging the world with this catastrophic flood and how horrible it really is. And then we'll ask a few questions about Noah, his ark, and so forth. Genesis 6, 11, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And God saw how corrupt the earth had become, For all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. And this is how you are to build it. 
The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark from, to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on the earth will perish. Let's just stop there for this morning. Now, when I read a text like that, I have questions. Do you? Question number one that I want to ask this morning about it is, okay, if he gave him dimensions, specific instruction and dimension on how to build that ark, my first question, the way my brain works is, is that a seaworthy vessel? Question number one, was the ark a seaworthy vessel? I referenced the Babylonian a mythological story or the story based upon the flood history that's distorted and that it was a cube. It wouldn't work. I at least like to know that what God recorded about what he told Noah to do, that it really made sense. I like that. I just like that. doesn't prove the Bible true, but I just like that. What's the dimensions based upon in the NIV? Some of you have a Bible and it might say it was so many cubits. What's a cubit? Do you know that Bible scholars argue about what a cubit is? Anywhere from 18 inches up to like 26 inches. They often use as a standard, it is believed that a cubit was from a man's elbow, either to this wrist bone right here, or some say from his elbow to the tip of his finger, and that that was a cubit, and it was a way of measuring. And we're so used to having set, established um, Uh, measurement codes, like our tape measures. We don't go to Home Depot and buy a tape measure, then go to Lowe's, well, maybe some of you do, but go to Lowe's and buy a Home Depot and then compare the two to make sure they're both the same. An inch is an inch is an inch. A foot is a foot is a foot. But you know, they didn't always have tape measures. In fact, it wasn't that long ago, our our fathers and grandfathers here in America, when they were going to build a barn or build a shed, the first thing they did was they would go get a nice piece of ash or a piece of red oak or white oak, and they would cut it down and they would make what's called a story pole. And it would be any number of lengths, and then they would use that story pole to build their whole barn. It would be so many many of those, and and they could figure it all out. They just made their own measuring rod, whatever they wanted it to be. And then if they were all done, they'd put that up as a pole for a flagpole or something. And they'd build the whole thing. they have a tape measure. Just make, make a rod. And so you can get all wound up figuring out what is a cubit, but basically, by and large, it's about a foot and a half. Anywhere from a foot and a half to maybe two feet. In the NIV, they translate it into feet to make it understandable to us because we don't know what a cubit is. For some of you who are interested in Bible study, that's called... In the translation work from the Hebrew into the English, that's called dynamic equivalence. That is, when the Hebrew scholars sat down and looked at the manuscripts they were using to translate the NIV, they knew that nobody knew what a cubit was. And so they kind of guesstimated what was a reasonable, accepted view on a cubit, and they translated it into feet so that we would read our English Bible and we would kind of know what we're talking about. So we know that that's pretty close to what the ark was, but we don't know 100% if it was to the inch. But I say all that to say that, did you see how it turns out? 75 feet wide, 450 feet long. 450 feet's pretty long. We'll see that in just a minute. That's a football field and a half, 75 feet wide. That's a one to six ratio. Remember my Babylonian cube that I was been talking about this morning? Do you know that shipbuilders never use a cube? But do you know that through history, shipbuilders regularly use a one to six ratio in building boats? ocean-going vessels. Isn't that interesting? 
That doesn't prove the Bible's true, but I just really like that, don't you? It makes sense. It's not hard for me to believe, and that that was a very stable design for the ark. We don't know if it had square corners or round corners, and it leads us to another question in our story. Let's look at verses 19 to 21 in chapter 6. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground, they will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and food for them. So the next question, number two, that I want to ask this morning is, all right, we got a 450-foot-long boat, we got a 75 feet wide, we got a 45 feet high. What are the odds that we can fit two of every unclean animal and seven of every clean animal and all the food to sustain them for what ends up being about 350 days that they're in the boat? Does that make sense? Or did God do one of those another miracles and feed them with manna? Doesn't prove the Bible, but I just really like to look at that. And there's a guy over in the Netherlands. Let's uh, see it, Keith. His name is um, John Hubert. I, I, I don't know. I should have asked Willem how to pronounce his last name, but it's like John Hubert. There's a picture of John. He must be a pretty great guy because in the Netherlands for about the last 50 years, people have been rejecting the Bible at a higher rate than they've been rejecting it in America. And the church is essentially dead in the Netherlands, in Holland. But John is a Bible-believing Christian, and John did something with his own two hands and with much of his own resource. He built, according to the biblical specs, a replica of Noah's Ark. It's not designed to, to sail full of weight on the sea or in catastrophic waters. He just built it to be a, like a little museum and a gift shop and a restaurant. Go ahead and flip it, Keith. But I thought it was kind of neat to take a look at it. And you see the man standing in the door. It kind of puts it in perspective. Again, Keith, you get the big door in the side, the way the Lord said, and he's got some fake elephants in there on different decks. Now, in the ark, we're told that there were three decks, 15 feet high, three different decks. That adds up to 45 feet. In this auditorium, and Woody, maybe you remember, but I think this peak here from the floor is 27 feet, if I remember correctly. I think it's 14, uh, 14 feet to the eave right there. Okay, from the floor to that eave is 14 feet. And so there's plenty of room, plenty of room in there for lots of storage. The cubic feet of this boat is just massive. In fact, people who've done the math on it say that the cubic square footage, the cubic feet of the, of the ark, that's all the space inside the ark, is equal to the cubic feet of 522 railroad boxcars. So when you're sitting at the railroad track and you watch them go by, count 522 of them, and that's how much space the ark had in it. That's pretty neat, isn't it? And you say, well, that doesn't... I think floor space is what really matters. Well, um, it's in my notes somewhere, the floor space and its big space, over 100,000 square feet of floor space. But cubic feet does matter because think about all the cages... Think about all the cages you could build and stack up here and have little gangplanks and stuff for all the animals that you could stack up in cages. And think about how, like, on an upper deck, you could have granaries and you could have little hay mows and you could build chutes and you could run that granary down through to those cages. That's pretty neat, isn't it? There's a lot of room. You ever been in a big barn? Noah's Ark was bigger than a lot of that. Flip a couple more pictures here. I thought this was kind of neat. There's a giraffe in there. But you know, even just leave it there for a minute. You know the 
picture of the big giraffe there. Something else that people get hung up on, and we're not going to have time to talk about dinosaurs today. We'll talk about them, Lord willing, two weeks from today. But people say, what about dinosaurs? What about a giraffe? What about an elephant? Hey, there's a such thing as baby elephants. The juvenile. Is there any reason it had to be a mature, full-grown animal? And in fact, biologists have looked at animals, and you look at, the, uh, at mammals particularly, and, and creeping things, air-breathing, land-dwelling animals are what Noah had to take on the ark. If you look at that and you come up with an average size, guess what it is? It's not bigger than an average sheep. And some guys maintain that if you, if you know all the spectrum of land-breathing animals and you come up with an average, it's only a little bit bigger in average than a jackrabbit. So yes, there's a lot of big animals, but there's all kinds of little animals. Some people who are into insects say there must have been at least a million types of insects on the ark. Isn't that interesting? I think that's probably true. But they had all that animal hair and people hair and hay mow and the granary. And they lived all over that ark probably. But I kind of wonder about those insects coming in that boat. Like a million different insects. I suppose, and I didn't do any research on this, that it's possible that larvae deep in the ground or in tree bark or something that you know how like even outside when it was like up in Preston County it was 17 below zero there's still going to be bugs come up out of the ground next spring and out of trees and stuff it's amazing and so maybe that all that insects didn't have to be on the ark to survive the flood I'm not sure somebody smarter than me could figure that out but that's interesting are there any more uh, Keith I, I forget yeah that, that's the picture I liked it kind of gave you an idea of perspective and shooting through there and how he built that with his own hands. I thought that was kind of neat to put it in perspective a little bit. And uh, thank you, you can click that down. You know, another comment on the species of animals going into the ark. First of all, why two of every unclean and then seven of every clean? Why did the Bible say that? One reason is, is because they used only clean animals for sacrifice in their worship. And already they were going to make some sacrifices. So they had to slaughter some of those animals. Secondly, um, the clean animals were basically think of those as domestic animals. Split hoof, chewed the cud. It was a productive workhorse, a work animal, not a horse. Work cattle kind of animal. They ate them. And they used them for labor. And so the Lord, in his wisdom, had him put more of those on there so that they could celebrate when the dove didn't come back. And they, you know, let's have steak today. And uh, so there was a use for those animals. So the Lord gave more of them. So that just makes sense, doesn't it? Another thought on the number of species, because people used to say, Pastor Van, there had to be tens of thousands of species of animals that were living. And then there's been tens of thousands of animal species that have gone extinct in the last 4,000 years since the flood. So what about that? All those species of animals. Well, think about this. Where did all the different kinds of people come from? There's only eight people on that boat, and, they all, and uh, four of the boys had the same mama and daddy that were on the boat, and they had wives. Well, where did we get all the different colors and all the kinds of people? How did that happen? What happened to the gene pool to create Africans and Asians and, and Eskimos and Euros? What, you know? How did that happen? We're going to talk a little more about that later in Genesis. 
But the same thing in the gene genetic framework of animals is true. For example, some of you are really interested in the white-tailed deer. Is the white-tailed deer the only kind of deer on the face of the earth? There's all kinds of deer, aren't there? I didn't do any research, but I just listed in my notes what I know. There's white-tailed deer, and there's mule deer, and there's black-tailed deer, and there's sitka, and there's, there's fallow deer, and I think an elk is a deer, isn't it? Is an elk in the deer family? Okay? Some scientists and Christian researchers, creation researchers, show us very clearly and very scientifically how Noah would not have had to have every species of deer on the ark, but he would have had to have representative uh, parents on the, for lack of a better way of putting it, that out of those deer, then they produce young, and then as they spread out over the earth and, and found themselves in different areas, then the breeding that took place established different strains. You can do it with cats, you can do it with all the different kinds of dogs, all kinds of things like that. And I don't know a lot about that. Genetics is a phenomenally fascinating uh, world, but I believe that's very accurate and very true. And that's another thing. Another thing people say is, all right, if he's got these grizzly bears and polar bears, and then he's got turkeys and chicken and rabbits on there, how did they keep them all happy? Well, the answer is, I don't know. But... Some guys suggest that possibly a lot of the animals were, went into sort of a hibernation mode. Well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? We're not going to have time, I said, about dinosaurs, but I, let me say it. There were dinosaurs on the ark. And we'll talk later about the Ice Age, not today, another day about the Ice Age and what happened to them. But I don't know. That doesn't prove the Bible's true. But you know what? I really like it that when I get this little bit of information about Noah, his ark, and the animals, and then when I break it down and look at it, it does not contradict my logic. It does not contradict the physical world of possibility. And it all fits together. I find that helpful. I, re I really do. And encouraging. We have some religions, one in particular that is very popular in our area and across our country and is growing around the world, that believes that the way the earth started and the way the earth got populated was that a guy from the Middle East over by Israel built a raft out of logs and that a big wind blew him clear over to South America and then that he came up through South America and populated the world from there. Do you know there's no evidence of that? And then when you look at it and break down the story, it doesn't work. I just think that's interesting. Question number one, was the ark a seaworthy vessel? Question number two, did the ark have the capacity to hold two of every kind of animal and seven of others? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Question number three, how could worldwide species come to the ark with ocean divides? In other words, you're saying, you're thinking, Pastor Van, kangaroos only live in Australia. How did kangaroos get from Australia clear up to where Noah was, which is probably somewhere in the Middle East? Come to rest on Mount Ararat, and if it was the same Ararat as today, which is not exactly the same, but maybe the same region, somewhere in southern Turkey. Well, we have good reason to believe, and that's a good question, but we have good reason to believe. Remember, we're not, we're not uniformitarianism-ists. We believe that things could change, and we have good reason to believe that the earth and the surface of the earth pre-flood was really different than post-flood. And you say, well, why do you say that? It seems to be evidence from the 
paleological record and the archaeological record, when you dig in the ground and you find certain things that probably pre-flood, the Bible doesn't say this, but there's evidence to show that pre-flood, that the earth's atmosphere and climate was, was quite similar all around. And probably the, the earth's surface wasn't broken up as much. Remember, the earth uh, went through tremendous upheaval during the flood. We'll talk about that in just a minute. What is some of that evidence? Do you know that they found camel fossils in Utah? Camel fossils in the state of Utah in USA. Excuse me, Oregon, not Utah. I didn't look down. Oregon. Hippopotamus fossils have been found in England and Germany. Rhinoceros fossils have been found in Siberia. Another place on an island in Siberia, they found through the strata, frozen in the rock and the ice, a tropical tree with tropical fruit still on it, frozen in. You see, there's reason to believe when you look at the evidence that probably there was a much more even climate and that a lot of different animals mingled and lived in places that now they've separated themselves and it's not quite the same now as it was. It changed. It was different. So the reason, the way the animals got to the ark is they walked. Okay? I'm a good scientist, aren't I? Was the ark seaworthy vessel? It sure was. Did the ark have the capacity to hold two of every kind of animal and seven of others and all their food? It absolutely did. How would worldwide species come to the ark with ocean divides? There probably weren't ocean divides like today. There were probably at least peninsulas connecting, and there was probably many different intermingling of species of animals in the same locations where we have it all divided up now. Lastly, where did all the water come from? Because some of you know that there's no way that the atmosphere can sustain that kind of water droppage. It just it can't rain like that for 40 days and 40 nights. Can't do it. You know that back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 7, listen to what it says. Genesis chapter 1, verse 7, it says, So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. There was a dividing of the water, and many biblical creation scientists believe that just based on that clue, and that's what we have, only snippets. We don't have a lot of information. But putting two and two together, so to speak, there appeared to be great volumes of moisture in the air in a way that we don't have in our current atmosphere, pre-flood. Some even speculate, and they call it a vapor canopy, and they even think that it's protected earthlings and vegetation and so forth from harmful sun rays, and that's part of why people could live longer with less disease. I don't know if that's true or not. It's a theory, but it's fun to think about. But it also says then in Genesis chapter 7 that the fountains of the deep broke forth when the flood started and the rain came. You know, I've flown all over the, all over the interior of Alaska in small plane. You know what you see in different parts of Alaska, especially out, you get out by the Yukon Delta and out there, you know what you see from up above? Dozens and dozens and dozens of signs of volcanic activity. It's old. I think that when the flood started, that the earth just kind of ruptured itself. And I think that there must have been pressurized, pressurized 
cisterns of water within the, underneath the surface of the earth. And when it says the fountains of the deep burst forth, and when it says the, the heavens let loose its water, it must have been something to behold. I didn't have as much time to prepare as I wanted to for this message because I went to see my mom in Charlotte in, on, with, on short notice. But I was clicking on my laptop, looking at some of the slides and some of the video footage of the 2004 tsunami. I hadn't really looked at that stuff too much. I'd kind of forgotten. It was unbelievable. People screaming and water washing through these hotels and along the beaches and, and people running, a still photo of people running and water coming. I think it was exactly like that. I think there were earthquakes. I think there were tsunamis. I think that the earth broke open and I think that the horrendous sheets of water fell and I think it had to be the most frightening, incredibly cataclysmic event that the world has ever known. It's just Unbelievable. I was looking uh, last night, I clicked on a, on a flood picture in Des Moines, Iowa from just last year, this past year. It was unbelievable. That was nothing. That was nothing. That was just the Mississippi getting out of its banks a little bit. He said, where did the, all the water come from? The vapor canopy that God had created and separated above, and then the fountains of the deep as they burst forth. How could, question number five, and this is it, how could the water have gotten deep enough to cover Mount Everest? I want to know that one. How could the water have gotten deep enough, even if it did burst forth, and even if it did rain for 40 days and 40 nights? Mount Everest is like 30,000 feet up in the air. That's five miles above sea level. Well, it goes back to the fact that no doubt the topography of the world was much different than it is today, and that even continental shifting took place. We can see the evidences in the geological world there was shelf bending, there was washout, there was change, there was upheaval, and many biblical creation scientists believe that the oceans before the flood were not near as deep as they are now and that the mountains before the flood were not near as high as they are now. And that with the volcanic and cataclysmic activity of the earth shuddering under this great event, that mountains were thrust up and that the oceans sank and part of that answer, too, is what happened to all the water? In chapter 7 and chapter 8, it's going to say that a wind came to dry off the earth. God sent a dry wind to evaporate the water. That would, of course, put it back in the atmosphere. But also, some scientists believe that the earth, that the, the ocean sank and that the water was able to slump down. And, you know, there's parts of the ocean that are miles deep. Well, there's five questions. You say, well, that was all pretty fun. That was kind of weird for church today. We didn't study the Bible too much. What are we going to do with this? We take it home. We're going to pick this up in two weeks, and I do have some application to make, but for us today to go, it's kind of a repeated theme through Genesis. It is this. Folks, don't be embarrassed to be a Bible-believing Christian. Do not be embarrassed to be a Bible-believing Christian. I'm going to tell you something. Where we're going with this, according to our title in the bulletin, is that if you're embarrassed to believe in a flood, then you're probably embarrassed to believe that Jesus died on a cross. They're related. They are related. Secondly, let me challenge you. Please teach your children that the word of God is true. You know what I think would be great? I think it'd be great if some of our boys and girls would grow up to get PhDs and be 
biblical creation researchers and scientists. Write more books. That'd be great, wouldn't it? And teach in universities and challenge the system. The earth is not flat. I'll tell you something that's even dumber than that. That everything came from nothing. Duh. Why don't we raise our boys and girls up to write books and to teach, to live and to believe the truth? Amen? Praise God for godly men who are doing work like that. And I hope that that challenges your thinking a little bit, to just look at some of this stuff from a little bit of a practical, pseudo-scientific level. I'm not a scientist. And just to bump into some of these things. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for this great story and what a horrible event it was and what a reminder it is of the consequences of sin and that the wages of sin is always death. But thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy and that there was an ark and there was a place of peace and safety and they could run to it and be safe. And Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus who today is our ark of peace and safety. Help us never to be ashamed of your gospel. Help us never to be ashamed of our Bibles. Help us to be light in a dark world, to build our lives on the foundation of your word. And then when the storms of life come and the rains fall and the floods rise, we're built on the rock and not on the sand. In Jesus' name I pray.